The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the time of prayer we've just had for Haiti, and now we give our attention uh, to the study of the doctrine of God. And I just pray that this meditation uh, in Scripture would be greatly encouraging to our hearts and souls as we face uh, just the immensity of the trouble in Haiti and generally in the world. We realize, Lord, you alone have the power and the resources to address uh, these issues. And so we turn to you empty, O oh Lord. We turn to you without any resources. Uh, we turn to you and ask that you would renew us and replenish us. So, Lord, this is a timely study for us now. I pray that you would teach us who you are and strengthen our faith so that we can then do the good works you have for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been looking at uh, the doctrine of God and uh, studying his attributes, and we are in that category of attributes called the incommunicable attributes. These are attributes that are unique to God alone. There are some things that are true of God and God alone. And uh, so we looked at his self-existence and uh, also at his immutability. Uh, so we turn now, uh, if you have the, the handout, page 8, to the eternity of God. The eternity of God. The definition that we are given here is that God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in His own being, and that He sees all time equally vividly. And yet, for all of that, God still sees events in time, and He acts in time. So God is timeless in His own being. Uh, Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. In John 8:58, this also applies to Jesus. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Revelation 1:8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. That's speaking of God the Father, I believe, in Revelation 1. But at the end of Revelation, Jesus says the same thing in reference to himself. He also, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we see the equality of persons on this, uh, this incommunicable attribute of eternity. Now, it it's really boggles the mind. It's really something very hard for us to understand that God sees all time um, equally. Uh, in other words, uh, every moment of all of human history is equally vivid to God right now and always has been before even a day of it came to be. Before the foundation of the world, God knew all of human history every day. All the days ordained for our individual lives were written in His book before one of them came to be. Before a word is on our tongue, uh, God knows it completely. And uh, so God knows the end from the beginning and He sees everything equally well. So here we are in the middle of time, actually, in my opinion, way toward the end of time. Uh, we are already, the Bible says, in the last days. Uh, but we're perhaps in the last part of the last days, who knows. But uh, just think of it this way, that, that uh, the events of Abraham's life are equally vivid to God right now as, as they were when they were going on. And frankly, they were equally vivid in the mind of God before any of them happened. It really is something very hard for us to get, get our minds around, isn't it? The eternity of God. 
And so it says in Psalm 90 and verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And 2 Peter 3.8 gives us this mystery. It says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Uh, the context of Peter's comment there uh, has to do with the end of the world, has to do with the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. As scoffers and mockers say, you know, where's this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it always has. Since the days uh, of antiquity, everything's just kind of moving along. And so they scoff and they mock because everything's just kind of ordinary and the way it always has been. And so he says, you know, we need to keep this in mind that time for God isn't like it is for us. And he brings out this statement with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. I think the second half of that statement shed some light on Jesus' statement at the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming soon, he says. It's like, now what, Now surely here's, here's a place where the Lord has erred. You know, he said he was coming soon and it's been 2,000 years. Uh, but it's soon as far as he's concerned, okay? We'll know more once we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. We'll see what soon means at that point. 2,000 years is just nothing. It's just nothing. We are in the providence of God and the will of God, eternal beings ourselves, but we did have, have a beginning. But we will have no end and we will spend eternity either, either in heaven or hell. And so then I think then we will understand this word soon. Behold, I am coming soon. It says nothing. With the Lord, a, thousand, uh, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are just like a day. Okay? Flies by like nothing. And so uh, the Lord spoke accurately when he said, Behold, I'm coming soon. For myself, I find it equally amazing to consider the first half of the statement. With the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. What does that mean to you? With the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. Go ahead, Don. He's not bound by time. Okay. Okay, that's sure that's one way to look at it. Yeah, Tom. I would think that you know, he's he's not in a hurry. So many times for us a day goes quickly and we lose sight of all the events and the things that happen around us. But for God there's an infinite amount of time in a day and he looks around and right. all of the things and knows what we do and aware of every circumstance, even the sparrows that might fall to the ground. Very true. Other thoughts on this? Susan, go ahead. Yeah, there's a lot of aspects to this. Let's just bring the terror of the law down here, okay? Let's think about it this way. That God studies your day so completely, it's as though moving in super slow motion. He studies the thoughts and inclinations of your heart. He doesn't miss a thing. You can't slip one by him, a fast one by him. Nothing's fast to God. And and who would be able to stand under that level of scrutiny when the Lord has that accuracy concerning every day you've ever lived. And not just you, but the billions and billions of other people that have ever, ever lived. Would it be possible to write a 30 or 40 volume uh, series of history based on one single date in history? Is it possible to do that, do you think? Absolutely. 
I don't know who'd read it. <laughs> you know, who would read it? But God could write it. God could write it. More than that, you know, we, we're told in the book of uh, in the Gospel of John that you know if everything Jesus did were written, even the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books that would be written. And so the fact is, the Lord studies everything, and not he, he misses nothing. This really edges over then into his omniscience as well. But the fact is that that God knows everything that happens. Time doesn't really mean anything to him in that regard. And so it's it's really quite striking. Also, uh, I think this moves over into God's ability to predict the future. The word predict is really a human word, okay? Because if God is eternal, it, it really is equally happening in front of him at all times. It's just beforehand for us. You see what I'm saying? So he's predicting it ahead of time for us. But it's really not difficult for him. And this is a unique, again, these are the incommunicable attributes. There is no other being in history or in, in existence, sorry. There's no other being in existence who knows the future in the way that God knows it. Satan doesn't know the future. Um, the prophets don't know the future except that God tells them what's coming. All right, none of us knows the future. We know that very well. We're not prophets and we definitely know we don't know the future. Meteorologists don't know the future as they've proven time and time again. All right. The fact of the matter is, you know, we can make kind of predictions based on past events, etc., but we don't know for sure, you know, what's going to happen. But God actually does. He actually does know for sure what's going to happen. And there's no in uncertainty about it. Uh, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he separates himself from the idols in this regard. He's different than the idols. He's different from the, the gods uh, and goddesses that the people of Israel and other nations were worshiping. Isaiah 41, 22 through 24, this is what the Lord says. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. So this is God taking on the gods. You know, at one point he just says, just do something. <laughs> Since you don't exist, you can't do anything. But he really does zero in on this ability to predict the future. Notice he also talks about the ability to tell the past. <clears throat> I mean, all you have to do is just go to a courtroom and find out how much difficulty there is in determining the past. The lawyers argue over the history, right? Because based on the history, then the judgment will be rendered. And so there's an awful lot of debate and discussion over what really happened and did it happen this way and that's just their opinion and then the other witnesses come in and all that. God doesn't need any of that. He's not going to need any help on Judgment Day, okay? He knows what the history is. He knows what the history is. We've, we talked about this in my family about that moment when, uh, when uh, you know, Sarah laughs, you know, and, and then lies about it, Remember? And uh, why did you laugh? Why did you laugh? Oh, I didn't laugh. You remember how God deals with that? Oh, yes, you did laugh. And there's no opportunity for rebuttal at that point. It's over. That's a little microcosm of Judgment Day right there. Oh, yes, you did. Let's move on. And this is the judgment now, or this is what it shows, etc. There's no question about the past or the history. God knows exactly what it is. But now I'm zeroing in on this issue of telling the future. Only God can know it and those to whom God tells it. And it's because he's sovereign, he's king, and he gets to determine the history as well but he does know the future events. 
Isaiah 45, 21, declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Again, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird to pray, and from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. So those are three passages from Isaiah in which he claims his ability to predict the future and does it in such a way that it's clear that there is no other being like him who can do it. He's the only one that can do it. So telling the future is impossible apart from God. Now you may wonder about in the book of Acts where there is a spirit, a demon, uh, who enables a certain slave girl to predict the future. Um, don't wonder too much about that. It's just a parlor trick, I think. You know, if I, for example, uh, predicted that in 10 seconds someone's going to walk across the floor and turn the lights off in this room and then I walk across the floor and turn the lights off in this room, you won't think it's a marvel. But if I predict it and you can't see any anybody acting and then suddenly the lights get turned off, you might think I'm amazing or astonishing, etc. In this way, I think that the demon is able to pull it off to predict the future, that kind of thing. But Satan doesn't know what the future holds. Why does he know then that his time is short? He's been told. <laughs> okay, that's it. And his time is, in fact, short. Again, that's more of that language. Behold, I'm coming soon, and you, your time is short. Uh, I think he believes it. That's why he's filled with rage. But the fact is it's all coming from God. All right? Now, God, for all of that, however, does see events in time, and he acts in time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And so God says, I know the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, that's proof positive that there is such a thing as alphabetical order. Those words wouldn't mean a thing except that Alpha comes first and Omega comes last. All right? But God says, I understand the order, the sequence of events. I know what needs to come first and what comes after and, and all the way down. God is a God of order and sequence. And you see that as has already been mentioned in the six days of creation. God had an order that he lays out and it's just beautiful and orderly and perfect. So God acts in time. Again, Galatians 4.4, 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. There was a right time for Jesus to be born. And he was born at just the right time. Now, you may not have thought that was the right time. There may be some things that have happened in your life and you didn't think that was just the right time. It doesn't make a difference. God's judgment is better than yours. And he knows exactly the right time for everything. And so in the fullness of time or when the time had fully come, that's when Jesus was born. And again, uh, Jesus declares this himself in Mark 1.15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So now he's, he's proclaiming the, the year of the Lord's favor, he says in Luke 4 when he quotes Isaiah. So the time has come. He acts in time. All right. And also in Acts 17.31, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is speaking clearly of judgment day. So God has set a time and he knows the right time. And so again, in this, in this issue, I mean, we need to realize God knows all the times and dates. The Father has set them by his own authority. He knows the right time and date for everything. You may be getting frustrated about a loved one who's not a Christian yet. You may have been praying and praying and praying. Your hope is still uh, that they will repent and come to faith in Christ. Instructed by the Scripture, you believe that God has His elect 
chosen before the foundation of the world. Therefore, you're praying that God's elect will come to faith and that your loved one would be one of them. But you may be troubled by the timing of it. Why are you making me wait, O Lord? You know, why so long? And, and, you know, you wouldn't be the first one of God's people that had these kinds of questions. Same thing happened with the Jews in terms of the restoration after the exile of Babylon or other things. You know, they're just, why, why so long? David might have wondered why it's taken God so long to knock Saul off. You remember when he, you know, had a second opportunity to kill Saul and is like, look, I'm not going to do it. You know, his time is going to come. You know, maybe he'll get a disease or some, he'll die in battle or something will happen, but I'm not going to do it. That's what he's saying. But he must have been wondering, you know, and he does write in certain song, psalms, how long, O Lord, how long? And so we just need to trust the wisdom of God concerning timing on things. But God knows all the times and he acts in time. We will always exist in time. Even in heaven, we will exist in a succession of events, even if time is no more. Let's keep that in mind. This is an incommunicable attribute, eternity. Okay? And that, though we will have an endless succession of time, and we will live forever and ever and exist. Yet, in no way are we eternal beings the way God is. There is a distinction between our existing eternally and God as an eternal being. Those are just very different things. Part of it just has to do with the fact that we will forever be creatures and God will forever will to sustain us and to continue our existence. But also it just has to do with the way we will experience, I think, heavenly events. I think that we will experience worship and different other things uh, in a succession of events. That's just the way we are. We're not going to become God when we get to heaven. And so we will do this and then we will do that and then we will do the other in heaven. Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. What does that mean? What do you think of when you think of the word walk? Daily activities, life. It's a metaphor frequently for just living. All right, you know, he walked with the Lord, etc. But, you know, if anything, if you ever watch a little infant learn how to walk, I mean, it's a succession of events is what it is. And they have to kind of master it. They have to learn how to do it. And so it, we're, we're going to walk by the light of the glory of God in heaven. Succession of events. That's all I'm saying. It's, that's the way we're going to live even in heaven. We're not going to become eternal beings the way God is. Kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. I don't really know what that means, but I think it definitely points to a succession of events, a sense in which a moment before the, the glory of the nations wasn't there and now it's been brought in in some new way. I don't, I don't know always what that means. I don't know. It's helpful to speculate. Maybe we go out in the new earth and go get some more glory and bring it into the new Jerusalem. I have no idea what that means but I do think it points to a succession of events. All right, any questions about eternity? Now that you guys fully ex- understand it. I have many questions about eternity. Yes, Susan. There are times when I really wanted a person who had done something and I Weird that is, but yet I do pray it and figure he can handle it. 
and that somehow that prayer will be effectual um, and you know being offered in time later than the advance. But on the other hand, I can sort of see that that could get kind of weird and we could end up praying for dead people. Dead people, there you go. Yeah, I pray that by the when he died, he would have done such and such. And yeah, I really don't know, you know, how that works. And frankly, I just think, uh, you know, our actions and how they fit into God's eternal plan is a mystery anyway. You know, our prayers and our evangelism and all that, it's just kind of a mystery. But I think it's good for us to continue to behave in time and to pray in time for, for future events. I mean, that's really what you're doing, um, praying for future events uh, always, not so much past events. Um, so I understand what you're saying. But I mean, that God knew we were going to pray and then somehow takes that prayer and applies it, you know, four months ago or whatever. Have you ever prayed that something would be in the mailbox? That's exactly that kind of thing, you know, because either God's going to make it materialize at that moment or somebody had already acted sometime earlier. So that's, I think, what you're talking about, Susan, that kind of thing. Come on, admit it. You prayed that something was in the mailbox, you know, and so there you go. You prayed for a past event to happen. So at any rate, let's keep going. Let's talk about the, uh, the attribute of omnipresence. Omnipresence. God is present everywhere. Psalm 139 teaches it, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And a key concept connected with this is that God is fully everywhere at the same time. He's never partially present. You never get like two-thirds of God or like two-thirds of the attributes of God or something like that. Whoever God is, whatever God is, that's who He is everywhere in His universe all the time. So that's, again, that's why this is an incommunicable attribute. Satan, for example, people have asked, is he omnipresent? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He is here and then he's there. I mean, isn't that what it says in Job? Where have you come from? Well, from wandering and from going here and there upon the earth. God doesn't do that. He doesn't go here and there. He is here and there at the same time. That's the whole point, is that God is equally present. You know, I've likened it before to back in the days when we used to listen to AM radio stations and, you know, you'd kind of come in and out of signal strength. Have you ever noticed that? You go into the bridge and it's gone. And then you come out from under and then, you know, something really important happened while you're under the bridge, you know. So, you know, it's pretty clear that the AM signal isn't under the bridge. And, and then there are other times that, you know, you can hear it, but it's a little fainter. And then I used to like at night it would be odd. It would be kind of like the wind was affecting it. You know, it would kind of get stronger and then weaker and then stronger and then weaker. I'd be listening to a ball game or something like that. That way it was weird. And FM was different. But, you know, I think some people, you know, wonder about God in that way. Well, don't wonder. That's not what God is like. He isn't stronger and more present in one place than he is in another. God is omnipresent. That means he's fully everywhere in the universe. All right. God does not have spatial dimensions. Okay. First uh, Kings 8:27. But will God really dwell on earth? This is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. The key concept here is that there is no container for God. No container. What do we mean by that when we say there's no container for God? No box. And so the key with a box or container is that the being is in here and not beyond the boundary. There's a boundary set, a bounded set. And so God is in here and then here's that boundary and he's not over there. There isn't such a thing. 
That's, that's what we're saying here by the omnipresence of God. There's no boundary for God. There is no boundary. All right, God is everywhere all the time. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that God is, is really big. He's just like really, really, really big. All right? No, I mean, God isn't really, really, really big. And then if you study the atoms, well, I guess God's really, really, really small. So God's both really, really, really big. and No, God just doesn't have any dimensions. He isn't a dimension being. He doesn't. He's neither big nor small. He just. You just can't measure God that way. He's. He, he's. That's not the way he is. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't uniquely and specially present at certain key moments of human history, so that the Bible speaks in that way. But that's all relational. That all has to do with relationship with human beings. You know what I'm saying? You know, take off your sandals, Moses, for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Why? Or, or Jacob, you know, after that dream with the, with the staircase up to heaven, the angels ascending, surely this is, this is an awesome place. I never knew that God was in this place. You know, this is the very doorway to heaven. You know, well, what's going on there? Well, it's, it's all relational. It's got to do with his relationship with Moses and his relationship with Jacob. It doesn't have to do with God's omnipresence. It's not like, you know, where he set up the pillar and poured the oil on it and all that Bethel, which means house of God, that, you know, then you go over over here and it's like God's not as much here as he is where over that pillar where you pour. The... Now, Jacob may have thought he was, but that's just Jacob not knowing. All right. I have no idea what Jacob, if he understood the omnipresence of God. He knows it now. Um, but the thing is, we need to not think that God's any more present here at church than he is in your living room or in your car or whatever. He's He's everywhere equally present all the time. But yet... The Bible does use that kind of language. I will be there. I will be present to bless you or I will be with you. Or, or even Paul speaks, you know, at my first defense, no one came to my support. You know, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So what's going on there in this doctrine of the omnipresence of God? When Paul says the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, what does he mean? I'm sorry. He made his presence known. It had to do with revelation, maybe to to um, Paul's spirit, something like that. That you know, I'm I'm really very much here with you now, and and I think that just a lot of it happens with the circumstances of your life. You may be going through a trial, and you really just need God to be present right now. And all that means, it doesn't mean that you're thinking of before that he wasn't present or you didn't believe in the omnipresence of God or something. It just means I need you to reveal yourself to my spirit and comfort me and assure me and let me, let me understand you. So God is present uh, and, he, and he uses an example of this in Amos 9, 1 through 4 when he's going to judge his people. Not one of them will get away, none will escape, though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I'll command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I'll command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. What a terrifying four verses that is. By the way, that last statement is what I think of when I think of hell. I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. I mean, the gaze, the, the we haven't talked about God's omnipotence yet, but the, the laser beam, the hot, like melt lead laser beam of God's focus on a being for his eternal destruction. That's what hell is. So don't tell me that 
Haiti is hell on earth. Okay? Haiti is not hell. Iwo Jima was not hell. I don't care that it's black volcanic steaming and death everywhere and all that. It's not hell. Hell is where this is happening, where God fixes his eyes on people eternally for their destruction. That's what hell is, and you can't, can't get out. There's nothing on earth that's equal to hell. Okay? But here it is. The, the point is it's phenomenological that God is focusing his attention there, but it doesn't deny in any way the omnipresence of God. God is also relationally distant from sinners. He uses that kind of language. For example, Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So what does that mean? I mean, is that a verse that denies what I said, that God is no more present in one place than the other? No, this is, again, relational language. God is distant from sinners, relationally. He's distant from them. Okay? Again, uh, Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Herman Bovink put it this way. When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you move yourself into your room. Even into your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. Then you retire into your heart and there you meditate. He is more inward than your heart. Wow. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled... There he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. The only refuge from God angry, he's saying there is God reconciled. It's your only hope. That's why you've got to flee to Christ because there's no other refuge. There's no place you can run away from God angry except to God reconciled. That's what he's saying. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. Isn't that beautiful? Don't flee from him. Flee to him. (laughs) That's what it's saying. Thanks be to God that in Christ he will receive sinners like us. But I'll tell you this. You look at that quote and really just meditate on it. He's really just going through the mechanics of sin there. Mm -hmm. You know, hiding. You know, doing shameful things in the secret. This is why I tell you, you talk about, you know, it's like, oh, you're doing systematic theology on Wednesday. Is that really practical? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very, very practical. I believe that all sin is a failure of faith. Do you believe this? That you can't retire into the secret corners of your house and be, get away from God? It's like, well, I kind of know that. Yeah, but what you don't seem to realize when you sin is that God is the issue and only ever has been the issue. It has nothing to do with people or whether they know or will ever know. The issue is you and God. That's all that matters. And he is there with you. Oh, that puts a new light on it. Oh, you need even more light than that. See, I think the more light you have in this, the less sin you'll do. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Don't you agree? So therefore, the result of our study here should be love from a pure heart. It should be loving God more and sinning less. I know it has that effect on my life. Let's meditate on these things. Let's beef up our sense of the greatness of God and his omnipresence so we won't sin. I think that's a beautiful thing. Any other questions about omnipresence? Go ahead, Susan. We have God dwelling within us. We have his Holy Spirit. Yeah. So certainly, David might have been saying here, I mean, we're already his and he dwells in me because he has the Holy Spirit also. So God, I mean, just from that, we need not conclude that God is omnipresent. He just wasn't going to get away from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was in him. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is within us. So, mm-hmm. so we'll always be there. 
Yeah, I think again we should we should understand that the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise really of the Trinity, the Father and the Son will come and make their home with us if we repent and believe and obey His commands. John 14, He's going to come and and dwell in us, and be in us and be with us. Again, that's relational language. He's He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But to us, He's going to be in us in a, in a relational way. He's going to be intimately involved in us and with us. That's the way I look at it. It's all about a restored, reconciled relationship and a pledge from God to be with us forever. That's really what that is there. It's not a denial of the omnipresence of God that, you know, yeah, he's uh, he's in me, but he's not in the non-Christian sitting right next to me on the airplane. So that somehow is a bubble in the universe where God isn't present. No, that's not it. It just has to do with with relationship in Christ. Does that make sense? All right, so there's a lot we can meditate on. Let's go to this um, fifth one, and that's the uh, doctrine of unity, the unity of God. And what this means is that God is not divided into parts, and yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. Theologians also speak sometimes of the simplicity of God, which they mean uh, intend to mean that God is not composed of individualized parts. However, the word simple has come to mean easy to understand, and that's clearly not the case. Amen? All right, so we're not sitting here proclaiming a simple God in that God is easy to understand. But what they're saying is that God doesn't have component parts. I mean, we shouldn't think of God like the Pentagon where there are different offices and there there needs to be this communication. God is just kind of communicating very well within himself. That's the wrong view of God. That's different parts and departments and, and purposes and functions. All right? God is completely integrated with himself. So clearly the key verse on this, it's not on your page here, but it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the oneness of God, the unity of God uh, is just, it really is something we, we can scarcely get our minds around. We, we, we really don't fully understand that unity. Um, we're going to talk you know, in our doctrine of, of God on the Trinity, but it bears mention here that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, separate persons of the Trinity, and yet perfectly one, one with another, in a way we just have a hard time fathoming. Very, very hard for us to understand. I was listening to a tape recently on uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, talking about the language of the persons of the Trinity. And, you know, how, how do we know that that's the best word? Persons. It's not found in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. And the person who was speaking was J.I. Packer. He said, well, we've just come to the conclusion that the word person is the least objectionable of any of the terms. All right. And in other words, it's the one we can kind of deal with and it doesn't seem to have led us astray. So we just go ahead and accept the word persons of the Trinity, but we don't really know what that means. Nobody really knows what that means. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, persons of the Trinity, and yet perfectly one. I don't really fully understand that. It's a mystery to me. It's good for us to meditate on because we are someday going to have a unity with one another that's patterned after the unity in the Trinity. That we're going to be one as the Father and the Son are one. It's just, it boggles the mind. And it's the only hope for this world. You know that, don't you? I mean, we we see the trouble. I mean, you see it in Haiti. You look at the at the divisions among the people and the wickedness. And I mean, I was just grieved uh, just following one report about the orphans in Haiti. And, and there was this orphanage and there, all these little kids are just sitting on these blankets 
and they haven't had anything to eat. There's, there is nothing to eat. And this woman who is there said, three times armed bandits have come over the walls and have come to steal our provisions. But the, there was none. Do you realize the double misery of this statement? First of all, that some people would be so wicked as to do that, to put themselves so far forward that they would take food out of the mouths of orphans at gunpoint is just unbelievably wicked. And secondly, that there is no food to give them. None at all. And then I was thinking, we were praying in the staff earlier, I was thinking about that statement about the sluggard, and I'm not speaking at all here about being sluggards or anybody's a sluggard. I'm just picking up on an image that the book of Proverbs gives us. Then scarcity will come upon you like an armed man and want like a bandit, you see. So they've, they've already been assaulted twice, once by human beings with guns and the other by having literally nothing to eat. It's come upon them and attacked them, and it's destroying them, killing them. And so... Well, they are able to be there, just not like, like we should. It's just an incredibly difficult logistical situation. I've seen, the, seen Haiti myself. I've been to Port-au-Prince three times and through, and it, it makes perfect sense to me that it's difficult to get food to all three million people. It's just vis- physically hard to do. We, we live in space and time, and you have to get this pile of stuff from this warehouse across the city, and it's just very hard to do. You're, I mean, you've got a box in your arm. You're clamoring over a pile of, of broken-down buildings and cinder blocks. They do, which is its, uh, its own problem. If I went as a, you know, if I went to Haiti, which you know, perhaps I will soon. I don't know. I have no idea as God wills. But you know, you, that's what you do. You bring in your own food and your own water. But my question is, how do you eat it? How do you eat it in good conscience? Mm. You know, how do you? So would you go and like Lottie Moon just starve yourself? Is that what you do? I mean, it's just it's insolvable problem. So I don't know. I guess you just have to go there with a strong sense of calling from God and with a sense of defiance. You're going to go ahead and eat your food and keep yourself strong and then go out the next day and minister some more to people. It's a, what else can you do? Or else you become emaciated and weak and lay on the, on the street and die like others. Uh, so it's just tough. It's just, no, there's no good answer except what God tells you to do. Just go do whatever God tells you to do and that's your good answer. You know. But at any rate, I'm just saying that is a picture of the disunity of the human race. We are fractured, divided. Sin has an explosive effect like a fragmentation grenade blowing everything into bits. God is one and he cannot and never will be blown into bits. And this is a really deep concept here because as we're going in serial style, one after the other, meditating on the attributes of God, we have the tendency to divide God in in terms of his attributes. You know, to divide up. You know, and, and it gets even weirder. It's like as you watch the government debate things and, and you know, I guess the Massachusetts senator now, I mean, you think about Ted Kennedy there for decades and his replacement's a conservative Republican. Just shows there's, you know, don't live for this life in this world. There's nothing permanent in this world. I just think that's just completely amazing to me. From my home state, and I say it with shame, uh, the People's Republic of Massachusetts actually, you know, elected a conservative Republican uh, it's just a fascinating thing to me, you know, but we should not imagine that within God, there's some debates and votes and some like, all right, in this particular case, the grace section won out. But at other times, you know, that wrath can kind of bubble up and there are times. And, you know, we, we, the, the whole thing with the political process is it's going to go like this, like a, like a slinky back and forth. You know, the Democrats will have it while and do lousy and then they'll get voted out. And the Republicans will have it and they'll do lousy and they'll get voted out. And it's going to be a slinky back and forth. But it, it's because they really don't have any, any answers. 
There's no final answers. But here's the thing. God isn't like that. It's not like God's swinging from, from wrath to mercy and back to wrath again and then mercy. It's nothing like that. God's a perfectly integrated being. And that means that every moment he is perfectly loving and perfectly just and perfectly wrathful and perfectly righteous and perfectly all those things. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I, don't, I can't make any sense. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you can't think it through. And your mind is too small to put that together. But let's never pit the attributes of God against each other. I've said this before, even in Acts class, but I'll say it again. I think it's helpful. You know, we should never use this kind of language. God is loving, but he's also just. And for that reason, blah, blah, blah. Don't, don't do that. Don't even talk that way because that pits the love of God against his justice. You know, how about this? God loves justice. Let's put them together. <laughs> All right. It, it, it's just everything's integrated in God, even if we can't figure it out. And so we have multiple God is statements in the Bible. God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is love, says twice in 1 John 4. God is love. But he's not just some, sometimes light and sometimes love and sometimes spirit. You know, he's all those things all the time. And there's other God is statements. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And the Lord is righteous in everything he does. There are a lot of God is statements in the Bible. They are completely harmonized within the being of God all the time. Hard to understand, isn't it? But there it is. That's the unity of God. But isn't it wonderful that it's so? Think about what heaven's going to be like. Think of the peace there. Think of the peace inside the being of God. Are you ever conflicted within yourself? Do you ever struggle within yourself? Well, the Bible tells me the answer to that. Galatians 5 tells me the answer to that. The flesh wars against the spirit. Spirit wars against the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And, and that phrase, so that you do not do what you want, means you never do anything wholeheartedly ever in this life. You just don't. You don't sin wholeheartedly and you don't serve God wholeheartedly. Do you? <laughs> As a Christian, can you sin wholeheartedly? If you're a Christian, you cannot. But neither do you serve God wholeheartedly. Someday you will, though. Isn't that beautiful? Someday you will serve the Lord wholeheartedly. God's going to heal that fractured heart of yours. But in the meantime, we should recognize God is a perfectly united being. And we're heading there. The peace of God is just a beautiful thing. All right. So we uh, put all these things together, the unity of God. Any questions about these attributes or things we've studied tonight? We continue to piddle along at a pathetically small, slow pace. But that's all right covering lots of ground. Why hurry, right? Why hurry? I mean, you probably all came in here knowing already that God was, you know, omnipresent and eternal, all that. We just know. Go ahead, Rick. What are you going to say? Okay. Rick, would you mind closing us in prayer then? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.